back in the day before technology, uh, I'd sit in the room with Dawson whenever we would do shows, and we had a great big box filled with uh, five by seven cards. Every single one of those five by seven cards had a scripture verse on it, and those scripture verses were categorized by topic. So if a teenager called in and they were struggling with uh, wanting to have an abortion or they were struggling with their relationship with their boyfriend or whatever it was, I would just thumb through cards to get to the right topic, had a stack of verses that were specific to that, sort through the right one, grab a piece of paper, write down a couple of questions, slide it across the thing to him, and then keep going. He'd ask the question and keep talking to the kid while me and the other researcher are going through cards, and then we're literally like flinging, you know, like playing cards at him. We're flinging five by seven cards at him saying, here's a verse to use, here's a verse to use, here's a verse to use. Amazing thing about that was he had a gift, unlike anybody I've ever been around before, to talk to at the time, we had about 550,000 listeners every week. And he had an ability to talk and make every single one of those people feel like he was talking specifically to them as an individual. It was pretty incredible. I learned a lot from him during those years. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for being here and thanks for giving me just a few minutes to talk to you about something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. If you'll indulge me just a minute to get some perfunctory housekeeping things out of the way, Dr. Harvey would skin me if I did not do this as the assistant director of the D-Men program. Uh, our D-Men here uh, is something that some of you may want to take advantage of in one of two ways. One, you may be an alumnus of Southeastern, and as an alumnus of Southeastern, you can actually audit any of our DMIN classes for free. So you don't, you don't have to come, at least it used to be for free. They may actually charge something now, but it's cheaper than if you came and took a doctoral class from us, even if you do have to pay. You can audit it. Here's the beautiful thing about that. You get to come and benefit from a class that you don't have to do the work for. Right? Like, you don't have to take the test. You don't have to write the papers. Like, it's the, it's the best of all worlds. Like, you get to come in and learn from a professional and be around a community of scholars, and you don't actually have to write 25 and 30-page papers. It's a, it's a great deal. So that's the first thing. The second way, though, that you might want to take advantage of that is some of you may want to consider actually doing a DMIN. I... I'm the person who's responsible for our recruiting in the demon office here at Southeastern. And here is the most common thing that I am perplexed by really week after week. And that is the individuals who think I could never do a doctorate. And then I have a conversation with them about our demon and they say, you mean I only have to come to campus 20 days over a three-year period? Yeah, 20 days over a three-year period. Only two years of classes in the last year is writing. That last project, it's about 125 to 150 pages long. I'm not going to tell you that it's easy, but it is certainly not unattainable the way so many people think that it is. And it's a great way for you to further your training in specializations like faith and culture. Many of you were in here for uh, Jonathan Six's talk just a minute ago talking about things related to culture and what's going on in the culture. We actually have a demon specialization in faith and culture. We have a specialization in missions and evangelism, biblical counseling, leadership, disciple making. We have 11 different specializations including one specialization that allows you basically to craft or customize your major seminar work 
for your entire program. So if you want to pick one course from here and one course from here and one course from here and one course from here based on what your ministry needs are, you can even do that. So if you want more information about that, after my talk today and after we dismiss, I'll be out at the table be happy to talk to you about that. I'd be remiss if I didn't do that. Dr. Harvey would probably have my head on a platter if I didn't say something to you about it. Let me say thank you to you guys for being on the front lines. Some of you are pastors, some of you are DOMs, your state convention workers. You're on the front lines of seeing the hurt that is involved in doing local church ministry day in and day out. And the average church member has no clue of that. The average church member thinks, man, being a pastor must be pretty easy. I mean, you know, it's a sermon two to three times a week and you know, go visit the hospital every now and then, play a couple of rounds of golf every single week. Who wouldn't want that life? You know, that's a, it's a pretty easy life you got there. I've been in ministry almost 30 years, 20, 29, about 29 years and six months. Uh, about 30,000 hours of counseling over those 29 years. A lot of those hours of counseling done with ministers and their families and looking at the things day in and day out that they face. And pastoring is hard. And the statistics related to pastoral health are absolutely staggering. They're just staggering. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what, what can we do if we want to help pastors deal with the hurt, deal with the pain, deal with the struggle, deal with the stresses that go into being a pastor. Leadership expert Peter Drucker once said that the four hardest jobs in America are this. President of the United States, president of a university, a hospital CEO, and a pastor. Those are the four hardest jobs in America today. I believe that. Walking with pastors day in and day out I, I agree with that. Take your Bibles really quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this passage, but I, I think it's a, it's a good launching pad for us. I'm going to share a bunch of other scriptures with you. Don't, I hope you weren't coming in here looking for an exegetical sermon. I'm not Jim Shaddix. I'm, I'm, I'm doing something topical, and it's going to be biblically founded, but you know, don't go out and tell Dr. Aiken that you listened to somebody that didn't do an, an exegetical sermon for you this morning. Hopefully, you'll be all right with that. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Just four verses this morning as kind of our launching pad. Isaiah 49, Isaiah says, Coastlands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of His hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in His quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, I will be glorified in him. But now listen to this, listen to what Isaiah says. But I myself said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And that passage of scripture for me so encapsulates summarizes the life of many pastors. And they would tell you unequivocally, without a doubt, God has placed a divine calling on their life. I've noticed an interesting trend in seminary over the last 
30 years. Uh, I enrolled in seminary, my first seminary class, I enrolled in in 1994. So from 1994 until now, here's one of the things I've noticed. When I was in seminary back in 94, pretty much everybody that I knew in seminary was there because they had a very strong sense of call. No question about it. God has placed this divine call on my life. I can't get away from it. I can't run from it. I have got to do this. Today, in my classes, whenever I teach uh, master's level classes on the first day of class, I often go around the room and I have everybody introduce themselves and I have them answer six or seven questions. Tell me their name and about their family and what degree program are they enrolled in and you know, what are they currently doing in ministry, they're volunteer or paid, and you know, what do they hope to do after they get out of seminary. And I've noticed a very interesting thing that I, I didn't see. Maybe, maybe a few people back in the, in the mid-90s whenever I was in seminary. But now it seems like the overwhelming majority of students that I run into whenever I say, what do you want to do whenever you get out of seminary? What do you think that God's called you to do? We have more students than not that say, I don't really know what God wants me to do. I know that He's called me to ministry, but I don't really know what He wants me to do. But there's one group of people that's different. And that's our pastors. Most of our guys that come through, they're pastors. They know why they're there. They're not trying to discern, ascertain, figure out. They know what God has called them to do. He's called them to pastor. He's called them to preach. He's called them to lead by sharing His Word with God's people. The prophet Isaiah knew what it was like to labor for the souls of the perishing and he knew what it was like to feel the crushing weight of responsibility of people failing to heed the word of the Lord and that's what pastors face day in and day out. So I'm going to give you some statistics this morning. Don't try to write them down. You can get them from soulshepherding.org. Soulshepherding.org. Okay? In 2009, Bill and Christy Gutierrez started Soul Shepherding to care specifically to ministers and their families. And they began collecting data from a variety of sources. Uh, stats going all the way back to the early 90s and coming all the way up to their most recent study was done around 2016. Here's what our pastors are facing. First, let's just talk about stress. Of pastors. Seventy-five percent of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. Ninety percent feel fatigued and worn out every week. Seventy percent say they're grossly underpaid. Seventy-eight percent were forced to resign from their church. Sixty-three percent of that number have, done, have been forced to resign at least twice, most commonly because of church conflict. Eighty percent will not be in ministry ten years later and only a fraction make it a lifelong career. 91% have experienced some form of burnout in ministry, and 18% say they are fried to a crisp right now. I remember during orientation, my first day at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, when Dr. Terry, standing up in front of our seminary students, said, 
turn to your left and turn to your right, one of you will not be in ministry. Look at the person on your left, look at the person on your right, and one of you will not be in ministry 10 years from now. And it scared the life out of me. It's a reality. The ministries that our pastors do is tough. What about some statistics on pastors' emotional health and on their family? 70% constantly fight depression. 50% feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they can't find another job. 80% believe their pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families, and 33% said it was an outright hazard. 77% feel they don't have a good marriage, and 38% are divorced or divorcing. What about pastors' lack of soul care and training? 53% of pastors do not feel that seminary or Bible college prepared them adequately. 70% don't feel that they have someone they consider to be a close friend. 50% do not meet regularly with an accountability person or group. Listen to this one. 72% only study the Bible when preparing for sermons or lessons. 21% spend less than 15 minutes a day in prayer. 44% of pastors do not take a regular day off. 85% have never taken a sabbatical. There is some positive news. In 2016, the Gutierrez ran a study. 78% of pastors said if they had it to do over again, they would still choose to be a pastor. 57% said that they were happy and fulfilled. 65% said they don't battle depression. 74% are not overly, overly fatigued. 97% have never engaged in sex outside of their marriage. And 56% of pastors' families feel their church is in sync with their family's needs. Regardless of whether or not you look at the older stats or the newer stats, the truth is undeniable in my opinion. Stress, stress-related illness, burnout, compassion fatigue, those are real-life issues facing pastors today. And unfortunately, most pastors don't realize the symptoms until it's too late. And the price to correct the issue is high. In a D-Men's seminar two years ago, we had taken our break uh, for lunch. Uh, I had gone home, had a sandwich, talking with my wife. I usually do this during D-Men's seminars because the days are long. We go from about 9 in the morning to about 6 in the evening, and so we take an hour and a half for lunch. So I usually go home, I eat something really quick, and then I usually you know, sit in my chair, maybe close my eyes for a few minutes and rest before I go back in for the second half of the day. I did that on that day, and the Lord wouldn't let me rest. I just, I was restless, and I don't know why, but the Lord just kind of kept prompting me, you need to cover the material on burnout and compassion fatigue. I had no intention of covering burnout and compassion fatigue. This is a class on marriage and family issues. And so I, I, it wasn't on my radar, like I wasn't going to do it in this class. I could not get away from it. So I pulled out my laptop, sitting there in my chair, found my PowerPoint presentation that I do on burnout and compassion fatigue, kind of walked through it for a few minutes, showed back up in the class and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to do it. 
started walking through the information on burnout and compassion fatigue, and there was a, there was a student sitting at the other end of the table from me. I was sitting at one end, had students on both sides of me. He was sitting at the other end. And the more I talked and the more I taught, it seemed as if the more uncomfortable he got. And I could tell he was becoming emotional. So I talked for about an hour, and I said, let's take a break. We took a break, and all the students left but him. And he sat there. I called him by name. I said, man, are you okay? And he started weeping. He said, Dr. Cockrell, 20 some odd years ago, this happened to me. What you're describing to me happened to me. And I lost my church and I lost my family. And for 25 years, I didn't understand the reason why. I've never heard of this. Nobody ever told me anything about burnout or compassion fatigue or what it was like to be a pastor. And he said, all I knew to do when things were falling apart was work harder. And the harder I worked, the worse things got. Incidentally, that student graduated a semester ago having written his DMIN project on designing a curriculum to equip pastors to avoid burnout and compassion fatigue in their ministries. Incredible just cycle of how that happened. The statistics are real. You know that if you're a pastor. You know that if you're a DOM who works with pastors because you've seen it. Maybe even you've experienced it. In 2005, I left New Orleans Seminary where I had been a professor for almost five years. Went to be on the, church, went to be on the staff of a church in Mississippi. Uh, a growing church. A church that whenever I got there we were running a little over a thousand. And whenever I left we were running around 26, 2700. Went there to be the the family pastor and director of their counseling center. And about a year into that, I not only almost left the church, I almost left ministry because I, I couldn't take it. I was working too many hours, had too poor boundaries. The work was overwhelming. We didn't have enough help, and I didn't know what to do. And at one point, I finally thought my only out here is just to get out. My only out is just to stop. Go do, go do something else. At least as a counselor, I can go hang a shingle out and I can support my family. Like I can actually make money outside of doing ministry. But I knew what God had called me to do. So I started reaching out for help. It is a reality that we face. So today I want to share three brief things with you. These are not going to be life-altering some of it may not even be new information for you. If it's stuff you already know, it'll at least be a good reminder, but it's going to be new information for some of you. Three questions I want to answer today. Number one, what are the biggest challenges facing pastors today? What are the biggest challenges facing pastors today? Question number two, how do you increase your awareness of the issues that pastors face? If you are a pastor and you're interacting with other pastors, how can you recognize when one of your brothers is not doing well? If you're a DOM, what, what can you do if one of your pastors is not doing well? Question number three, what are some practical things that you can do to ministers, 
to minister to the pastors that you serve and that you're around? What are some practical things that you can do to minister to the pastors that you serve or that you are around? So, What's number, two again? number two is, oh, no, I'm sorry, how do you increase your awareness of the issues that pastors face? How do you increase your awareness of the issues that pastors face? Each one of those questions has a slide. All right. So what are the biggest challenges facing pastors today? Well, based on the statistics that I told you earlier, a lot of issues. But they can be categorized basically into four categories. Okay, Four categories that we're going to look at. Spiritual deficiency, emotional disturbance, relational difficulties, and physical distress. Those are the four categories. A lot of different symptoms and individuals who may be struggling in one or more of these may not have all of the symptoms and that's the reason why we talk about categories and not just individual symptomology. Let's talk first about spiritual deficiency. Things like a lack of a prayer life. You heard the statistic on that earlier. Or a lack of time in the Word. Or a lack of intimate personal worship or a lack of accountability or a lack of being spiritually fed. Individuals who have this spiritual deficiency, uh, I like what Peter Scazzaro says. He says, emotionally unhealthy leaders or pastors, they are people who have a being with God, a being with God that is insufficient to sustain their doing for God. You catch that? I've actually got it for you in the slide, I think, just so you'll see it. Emotionally unhealthy leaders or pastors have a being with God that is insufficient to sustain their doing for God. Listen, pastors every single day, I might even argue that a majority of pastors today are in this place. It is constant output. They are always doing for God and their doing for God has replaced their being with God. And their being with God cannot sustain that continued doing for God. And you know what happens is the enemy, he's he's a sly little joker, right? Like our enemy, what he begins to do is he begins to give pastors all sorts of other things that they can try to pursue to try to help their doing for God be better and all of those things that they're doing to try to help their doing for God be better isn't doing anything other than taking up more and more time away from their being with God. So you have pastors today, and listen, I love Christian leadership. I love Christian leadership books. I'm a big fan of us making sure that we are really good leaders. But we've got pastors that whenever things start aren't going well, they start not going well, they start looking to leadership books to try to solve the problem as if it's some kind of systems and process issue instead of what's God doing in my life and am I leading out of the overflow of what God is doing in my life or am I leading from a position of spiritual deficiency? And so if we don't get this first one right, if we don't get spiritual deficiency right, I can promise you these other three, they're going to happen automatically. Spiritual deficiency happens. I can promise you these other three, emotional, relational, and physical issues, they're all going to come. 
because they all hinge on us setting right priorities and we learn those right priorities as a result of what God is doing in our life. I am amazed. I will go to associations and do, you know, like associational trainings with pastors or go to a church and do a staff training with pastors. And I get this pushback sometimes whenever I start telling them about the importance of setting boundaries and doing right things. And here's what they say. You just don't understand my church. You just don't understand my church. I say, and I don't want to be cruel, you just don't understand the Bible. I, I, I'm sorry, but if one of your church members came to you and said, hey, how do I need to handle the situation at work? And you said, well, here's what God's Word said. And they said, well, I know what God's Word says, but you just don't understand my job. As a pastor, you would say, well, I, I, I may not understand your job, but I do understand what the Bible says. And what the Bible says, we have to be healthy in these areas... But what has happened now in pastoral ministry so many times is we've succumbed to the culture. Not the culture out there. I'm talking about the church culture. We've succumbed to we're going to adapt our lifestyle to what the church expects, not what the Bible mandates. And until somebody stands up and says, hey, even if it means that the church doesn't like me and even if it means that I end up having to lose my job, I'm not willing to sacrifice my integrity and what the Bible says for a paycheck. You would say that to a church member. I would say that to a church member if it was a secular job. Oh, your boss wants you to do that on your secular job, but that goes against your moral values, that goes against your Christian teaching, that goes against what the Scripture says, and yet somehow we've created this culture where I think we would all agree. The Apostle Paul is pretty clear. What's our job as pastors? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. But you have a conversation with a pastor about his primary job is to equip the saints and not do all the work himself, and he looks at you like you got a third eye and says, you don't understand my church. They expect me to do everything. I understand their expectation. I understand their expectation is going to be disappointed I understand that if you don't push back against that, nobody else is going to push back against that. If you don't change the culture, they're, they're never going to change. And so pastor after pastor after pastor goes through that church and you know the old 22-month adage, 22 months later a pastor's let go, right? Because nobody pushes back and they end up burning out or they're forced terminated because they don't lead well. It's a mess. So we have to make sure that this spiritual deficiency thing gets fixed. By the way, if you want a really good resource on this personally or to walk through with some of your pastors, if you've never read Paul Tripp's book, Dangerous Calling, you ought to go home today and you ought to read it. And when, when Paul Tripp says, I, I had some myths that I believed about being, pa- about being a pastor... And one of those myths, for instance, was my whole personal identity was wrapped up in my success as a pastor instead of my identity being found in Christ. Or I, I began to believe that my theological education equaled spiritual maturity. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to back up on that one. right? As somebody who's got three seminary degrees... I can tell you that you can have all the seminary degrees in the world and not walk with Jesus. He says, I confused 
my ministry success with God's endorsement of my lifestyle. First time I read that, I thought, what does he mean by that? And the more I pondered it, the more I pondered it, the more I realized I was like, you know, I, I, I don't know that I've ever been in this place, but I've certainly been around guys that have been in this place where their lifestyle doesn't match. Their, their inward life doesn't match their outward life. But they've got so much ministry success that they believe that they're too valuable to fail. And so God, they basically say, God's okay with what I'm doing. After all, I wouldn't be having all this success if God wasn't for me. Tripp says, and it's just such a great simple reminder for all of us, success in ministry is always more about who God is and who we are. Right? It's not about my success. I'm not, I'm not successful in ministry because I'm God's gift to ministry. I'm successful in ministry because of who God is and my willingness to surrender to Him and allow Him to accomplish what He wants to do, not me accomplish what I want to do. And so we have to make sure that we have an awareness that some of our pastors, and one of you in the room may be here. Like you may, I, I've said this at multiple points in my ministry. I'm running on fumes. I'm, I'm running on fumes. The gas tank is empty, right? Like I'm, 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 I'm learning some stuff. I'm preaching good sermons. People are patting me on the back. I'm, you know, I'm succeeding in the classroom. But man, I am, I am spiritually, I am in the desert. I love what Dr. Aiken says to our incoming seminary students. He says, I would rather you make an A in your devotional life and your family life and a C in my class than an A in my class and a C in your family life and your devotional life. And I think that's right. And I, I've started saying the same thing to my class. Hey, if getting an A in my class means, it, means that you aren't going to worship and you're not going you know, to pursue God and you're, you know, you're going to substitute your devotional life for class time, I don't want to be on the hook for that. Right? I'm not going to look at you any differently whether you make an a C or an A, right? I, I honestly, my I jokingly said to one of my classes this time. I said, I don't care about your grades. I don't even look at them. My grader does all that, right? And the class kind of chuckled, and I said, I kind of say that a little bit funny, but I, I'm kind of a little serious about it too. So if you're all worried about how I'm going to think about you, chances are the next time I see you in the hallway after the semester's in, I don't even know what you made, right? I, I don't know. The grader graded them. I looked over the grades. But, I mean, I got 102 students this semester. You think I can remember your grade out of 102 students? I can't. Theological education doesn't mean spiritual maturity, and just because somebody seems to be succeeding doesn't... It, their church could be booming. I mean, busting at the seams. They're baptizing people left and right. Why? Because God's doing something awesome in that place for His glory, and that pastor may be just as dry on the vine as possible. Spiritual deficits. Second, emotional disturbance. Depression, discouragement, anxiety, worry, unresolved hurts or emotional baggage from the past. Hey, I'll tell you one thing I've learned being a seminary professor for, I guess now, five at New Orleans, five, ten. I, all total, I've probably been a seminary professor for about 15 years or so, some, some part-time, some full-time. But being a seminary professor for a long time, here's one thing that I've learned. There's a lot of people who come to seminary because they're looking to try to get well and get better, not necessarily because God's got a call on their life. They found a community. They found somebody, you know, at ch they love church. 
and they think, man, I'm really accepted at church and things are going well at church, so I'm going to go pursue a theological education so I can be around people like this all the time, but they're not necessarily healthy. Counseling a lot of ministers' families, it's amazing to me how much baggage pastors are carrying with them into the pulpit and into their ministries. Never done business with God on issues from their past. My brother died whenever I was 16 years old. He was 19 years old. He died suddenly and tragically of a, of a seizure. It marked me and in a, not a really good way until I actually went through counseling myself. Here at Southeastern in our DMIN program, one of the things that we actually do now is we require all of our DMIN students to take a class called the Minister as Person and Professional. And in that class, we do psychological testing, marriage testing, and I sit down one-on-one with our students and we walk through what's God doing in your life and tell me a little bit about your past and is there anything that might wreck your ministry out there that you haven't dealt with in here. Because most of the... You heard earlier that most of those forced terminations are due to conflict the root of the majority of that conflict are pastors not knowing how to handle conflict and the reason they don't know how to handle that conflict is because of their own junk. Because of their own junk. Now I'm not saying there aren't bad churches out there and bad people in churches. I've met a lot of them. right? I've been in a lot of churches that were bad, that had a lot of bad people and had a lot of problems. But I've also met a lot of pastors that had a lot of baggage And that baggage comes out in their pastoring. It comes out in their preaching and it comes out in their leading and it comes out in their resolving conflict with members of their church. And all that's the result of the emotional distress that's going on in their life. They've got a lack of healthy biblical self-identity. Their identity is all wrapped up in their role as a pastor. Not as a child of God, not as a redeemed saint, but as a pastor. Right? If you take that role of pastor away from me, I cease to exist. You don't cease to exist. You are still saved. You're still a child of the King. You're still redeemed. My identity is not the ministry that God has called me to. It is in Jesus Himself. Addiction. Don't even get me started. Don't even get me started on the high rate of pornography use among pastors. 65% of pastors... 65% have looked at pornography in the last six months. I don't mean it's something that they dealt with 10 years ago. 65 out of 100 pastors have looked at it in the last six months. And it's wrecking them internally because of the guilt and the shame and because of the relational difficulties that we're going to talk about in a minute. They don't have anybody they can go talk to and really that's the only deliverance from pornography addiction is for you to get real with somebody, but they don't have anybody they can get real with. So they just live trapped in this prison of addiction month after month after month. An inability to set healthy boundaries, an inability to to basically say, you know, I'm going to do healthy things in my life. I'm going to set healthy boundaries with people and with work hours and those sorts of things. Emotional disturbance. Three, relational difficulties. No question, God created us to be relational. Depending upon which translation you read and depending upon whether or not you count some of the one another's twice, there are basically about 57 one another's in the the Bible. We are created to be relational beings. We are called to live in biblical community. And yet, 
This is the most bizarre thing of all. And yet, the overwhelming majority of pastors do not live in any sort of a biblical community. They pastor a church, but they are not a part of that biblical community. There is nobody in their church who knows them, and there is really nobody outside of their church that knows them. Often you'll hear this, well, I've got a buddy and he and I, we connect about once every other month or so on the telephone. That is not living life together. How is that guy that you connect with once every other month by telephone or by video, how on earth is he going to know whether or not things are going good or bad in your life? Again, I'm on, I'll slide my soapbox back underneath the thing in just a second. But this is one of those areas where we've allowed culture and we've allowed convenience and we've allowed ease to push out what's biblical. I, I don't see the Apostle Paul saying things like, well, I can't really be open and honest with the people that I, I, I pastor in these churches. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, now whatever you do, whatever you do, because you don't want people to think that you're playing favorites and you don't, want, you don't want people to get the wrong idea. So whatever you do, you just make sure the people you're close to are outside of your church. Somebody please show me where that is in the Bible. It is not there. You will not find it. Trust me, I've looked. Okay? We are called even as... A, and I know it's hard. I know it's tricky to balance that. I know, all of the, I know all the pushbacks of why you would not do it. The problem is, is that none of those pushbacks are found in the Scriptures. The problem is none of those pushbacks, the Scripture doesn't say, you've got to live in biblical community and do all these one another's and, and be this shepherd who knows his sheep. You, you can't do that at a distance. You just can't. And so we've got these relational issues where pastors have nobody. They have nobody. They don't have friends. I, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I promise you if right now I said, how many of you in this room have at least one or two guys who they know you and they know you well, and you are around them regularly, and they are holding you accountable, and they speak truth into your life, I guarantee you less than 50% of the men in this room would raise their hand because it happens everywhere I go whenever I do this. Less than 50%. You need those kind of people in your life so that you can be relationally healthy. Back in 2000, and it was probably around 2007, 2008, uh, my wife Wendy, she and I, we've been married for 26 years. And uh, she's the love of my life. She's awesome. She's incredible. Um, I, I just, I love her to death. I really do. But sometimes she can be a little annoying. I, I know that probably doesn't happen with any of your wives, but just occasionally she can be a little bit annoying. And one particular weekend, we had a little bit of a, we had a little bit of a discussion. As we call those around our house. We had a, we had a little bit of a discussion about something. And, uh, and that discussion kind of escalated a little bit to a little bit of a, a little tiff, a little bit of a tiff. Uh, only she's pretty type A, and uh, the, the tiff was a little more escalated maybe than a tiff. And we both said some things and did some things that we both regretted, but I knew I was right, right? I, I knew I was right, right? You ever been there? You ever been there? You know, hey, 
I don't ever go into an argument thinking I'm wrong, right? But on this particular instance, I knew I was right, right? Like, I'm right, you're wrong, so we'll just agree to disagree. So basically, we had this fight on a Sunday night. We really hadn't spoken to one another a lot that evening. And the next day, I got up and just went on to work, and we didn't really talk. And, and I was just waiting on her to come back and apologize, you know? When she decides to get right with Jesus, she'll just she'll come on she'll come on back and she'll she'll tell me she's sorry and we can reconcile. I'm not. I'm not, and here's why. That day for lunch, I went and had lunch with four of my buddies. Four guys I was living life with. One of those guys three of those guys were ministers on our staff. One of those guys was our kind of in-house counsel. He didn't work at the church. He was a contract guy who was our attorney. And he was the guy because he wasn't on church staff. I mean, he, and, you know, he's a lawyer. I mean, he'd just tell you exactly what he thought. No holds barred. He's, today, he's still one of my best friends. And so we all go to lunch, and I can't wait to go to lunch because I can't wait to tell these guys about what's happened and how right I've been so that they can reinforce me in my rightness. And so we go have lunch at Biagi's Italian restaurant and we sit down and we order our food and I start telling the story and I get done with my story and I say, so what do you think about that? And I'm just waiting for the pats on the back. I'm just waiting for the accolades and the, man, I can't believe Wendy did that and I can't believe she would act that way. And Kendall looked at me and he said, man, you're just a jerk. turned around and looked behind me. I said, dude, did you not just hear my whole story? Were you not listening at what she did? He said, yeah, I heard the story. And let me tell you a few things that I heard that you did. And he started naming off the things. Man, I felt about that tall. He said, Tate, I know we've just ordered our food and everything. He said, but if I was you, he said, I... He had actually, Kendall had actually ridden with me to the restaurant. He said, if I was you, he said, I don't mind catching a ride back with these guys to my car. He said, if I was you, I would just go ahead and leave right now. And I would go home and I would say I was sorry and I'd ask for forgiveness. He said, because, buddy, this one's on you. He said, we'll be happy to bring you, we'll bring you food back to the church. You can eat, you know, you can eat whenever you get back. And I did. And thank goodness, thank the Lord for a brother who loved me enough to tell me the truth. Who didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, who told me what I needed to hear. Let me just be really frank with you guys. There's a lot of pastors out there, and I know it's none of you guys, but I'm, I'm trying to help you help your friends. Okay? There's a lot of pastors out there who they're only going to surround themselves with people who tell them what they want to hear. Don't be that guy. I was in a meeting with Dr. Aiken about a year ago. We were handling some pretty difficult situation, and the guy that we were talking to, he said at one point in the meeting, he said, uh, you know, nobody's ever, everybody I've talked to has just told me that this is great. And I'll never forget, Dr. Egan looked at him, very compassionate, looked at him. He said, you might need to broaden your scope of friends. You, you might need to get some people that are willing to not just tell you what you want to hear, but tell you what you need to hear. 
make sure you've got some of those kind of people in your life. If not, these relational difficulties, they're going to be real. Marriage difficulties, man, the rate of pastors that are divorcing in our culture, and even pastors who they're not divorcing, but they might as well be divorced. They're committed to the institution of marriage, but they're not committed to the wife of their marriage. They're committed to the institution. They're more committed to not being divorced than they are to actually working on their relationship and doing what they need to do to be the godly husband and the godly dad that they need to be. Isolation, betrayal, ailing marriages, conflict with members. Oh, man. Relational difficulties abound. I haven't even gotten through the first one, Chris. Physical distress. Physical distress. Workaholism, exhaustion, high blood pressure, lack of exercise. And the list just goes on. Ulcers. Whenever I was making the transition from uh, New Orleans to Mississippi to serve on church staff, I thought I was having a heart attack one day. Took me to the hospital. Thought I was having a heart attack. Took me to the hospital, checked me out, scoped me, ran a whole heart thing, the whole deal, and the doctor said, you got a ruptured ulcer. What's going on in your life? And so I start telling him about the transition we're trying to make and how many hours I'm working and I'm having to split time between Broadmoor where I was on staff and it was three hours away and still working at New Orleans so having to make that commute every single weekend and sometimes twice a week. And he said, man, I, he said, I don't want to have to put you on bed rest, but I will if I have to. Relational difficulties abound and those often lead into physical difficulties. All of these things feed into what's going on with our body. We don't take care of it. We stress it out. We don't get enough sleep. We don't eat right. And physical distress begins to set in. You, you may have pastors around you and they get sick easier. You know, they come down with stuff. They have unexplained illnesses. Physical distress all, all as a result of the challenge of just being a pastor. So how do you increase your awareness of the issues that pastors face? How do you increase your awareness? And i got to move quickly. One, simply have a plan. Have a plan. If you want to increase your awareness, you're going to have to simply make a plan to be aware. you got to be intentional, right? you got to have some intentionality. Listen, if you're an associational missionary and you're working with a bunch of pastors, if I were you... I'm not telling you how to do your job, but as somebody who cares for pastors a lot and you can do this well, I would have an Excel spreadsheet and I'd have every pastor in my association on that Excel spreadsheet and I would know when the last time was I, had, I took them to lunch, sat down and had a conversation with them about what's going on with them spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. The last two churches that I've... Well, not, not my last two, but two of the... The two churches, the last two churches I've served full-time. One church I was the family pastor and director of counseling. Other church I was the member care pastor. I was the member care pastor at Church of Brook Hills. Family pastor, director of counseling at uh, Broadmoor Baptist in Madison, Mississippi. Both of those positions, I put in my job description that every single month I would have, I would have a meeting with every single member of our staff. And so every morning... The first 45 minutes of every morning, I would get to the office. I would set my stuff down. I would grab my Mountain Dew because I don't drink coffee. 
I'd grab my Mountain Dew and I'd walk down the hallway and I knew who the next person was on my list that I needed to poke my head in their office. And if that person wasn't there, I'd go to the next person on the list until eventually I would get to somebody who was there and I'd stick my head in their office and I'd say, Pam, how you doing today? Great. Amazing to me how many of those conversations I would stick my head in their office and say, Pam, how you doing? And she would say, great. And an hour later, whenever I left, she's in tears. Because we're so conditioned just to say we're great. We're fine, right? Fine means freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, right? So anytime somebody tells you that they're fine, that's almost most assuredly means that they're not fine, okay? My former pastor, every time I call him, he says fine. I say, are you fine like with your definition of fine or my definition of fine? He says, I'm fine with your definition of fine. I'm like, okay, so we can have a conversation, right? Yeah, we need to do that. So we need to have a plan. You need to make it a point. We need to start holding one another accountable and having a sensitivity to the brothers around us to help hold each other accountable for these issues that we're talking about. Take some notes on what's going on. Take some notes. Follow up with individuals. Have a plan. Be inquisitive. Ask good questions. If someone tells you that they're fine, don't just take their word for it. What does that mean? What, what is the word, what, to them, what does the word fine mean? Oh, they're going great. Really? Tell me about it. What, is that word, what does that word great mean? Great may mean, hey, this is another week that I'm not drowning. That may be their definition of great is that they're surviving. So be inquisitive. Don't be afraid to step into their lives and follow up. Three, get some training. Get some training. Take a class. Watch a video. Go online. Invite somebody into your church or into your association and say, I want to learn about this. I want to know how to be aware of what's going on in the lives of the people around me. Many an opportunity is missed for us to make a difference in the lives of people because we just aren't aware of what to look for. Let me give you a quick example of that, if I can. Let me just zip through this real quick because I want to show this to you. This is what's called the burnout spiral, right? Burnout spiral. The burnout spiral usually starts with exhaustion, but it can start really anywhere in here, but it usually starts with exhaustion. And so you got a pastor and he's just physically exhausted because he's working all the time. He's running 100 miles an hour. He doesn't have help. Overwhelming majority of the churches in our convention are one or two staff church members, one or two, one or two uh, staff member churches, which means everything is falling on their shoulders. Man, that is so hard and it is so exhausting. And that exhaustion leads to shame and doubt about whether or not they can get the job done. They have shame and doubt because, man, this is too much for me. I can't do this. And that shame and doubt leads to cynicism. They start seeing everything negatively. Man, that church member that really didn't do anything negative to them, they see it as negative because they're just so depleted and they're just so run down and they just feel so bad about themselves. And so it turns into cynicism. And guess what cynicism produces? Failure. So they, they, they do less and less and they're successful less and less, and that failure leads to a crisis. And the crazy thing about this spiral is, every time you go all the way through those steps, it just spins faster and faster and faster and faster. It's the cycle that feeds itself. And if you've ever been through this, you know it. 
When I told you the story about the DMN student, when I explained this, this is when he completely broke down. He said, man, when I saw that burnout spiral, he said, I saw I just kept trying to work harder and harder and the harder I worked, the more exhausted I got and the more each one of those other things happened because I was so exhausted and it just kept feeding itself. So to be aware, you need to get some training. Take a class, watch a video, ask for some help, read a book. Um, Zeal Without Burnout, great book. Pete Scacero's Emotionally Healthy, Re- uh, Emotionally Healthy Leader, great book. Look for some resources to get some training. Lastly, what are some practical things you can do? What are some practical things that you can do? One, pray. Pray. You know, I, of course we're going to say that. We're at a seminary. You're hearing from a seminary professor. We're all ministers. Of course, we know that we're going to pray. But pray specifically for some things for the pastors in your life, whether they're your friends, whether it's yourself, whether it's people that you serve. Intercede for them on their holiness and their sanctification their marriages and their families, for good time management, to bring good friends into their life, for their physical health. The Scripture is pretty clear. We have not because we ask not. And so we ought to beseech God on behalf of the pastors that we know and that we serve alongside. We ought to beseech God on their behalf for all of those things. But don't just pray for them, pray with them. Pray with them. Pick up the phone and call them, check on them, and before you get off the phone, just say, hey, can I I pray with you right now? I'm oftentimes shocked. People will call me to update me on something as a professor, you know, maybe a student will call, and uh, they'll say, hey, Dr. Cockrell, I just wanted you to know I'm not going to be in class today. You know, my wife's going into labor, or, you know, one of my sons has got the flu, and... Uh, so just wanted you to be aware of that. You know, if you don't mind praying for me, you know, I'd appreciate it. And I almost always say, well, can I just, can I pray right now? Can I just pray for him right now? Uh, yeah, 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 you can do that. And so I, I pray right then on the phone. Don't just pray for them. Pray with them. Go by and see them. Here's another cool thing you can do. When you pray for them or with them, if you're not, if you're not with them tangibly, you know, send them a text or an email and say, hey, just want you to know I just prayed for you. Dr. Drew Ham on our uh, faculty here in our student life office, he's just, he, every, every month, he must just have a rotation of guys that he prays for. But about once a month, I get an email from him. He says, hey, Doc, just wanted you to know, prayed for you and Dr. Harvey today. Let me know if there's anything I can pray specifically about, but just wanted you to know I was lifting you up today. Man, that does my heart good to know he just did that. And I didn't even ask for it. Like, he just volunteered that. So pray. Two, encourage. Encourage. Send them a note or a text. Uh, Highlight them in events or publications. Encourage them to connect with other people. Uh, For those of you that are associational missionaries and you have opportunities that you can do this, Offer to preach for them on a Sunday when they're there, not just when they're gone, so that they could actually be fed and enjoy their church 
as a participant and not always a guy from the front of the room? Man, nobody could have ever... I had a very brief stint as a senior pastor. And there's kind of one reason, I think, and one reason only that I, I could never be a senior pastor again. And that's because Sundays take on a completely different meaning for you than they do as a participant. When you've got to worry about every single detail that, that has to take place, from what time we start and what time we end and how many ushers do we have and who's doing this and who's doing that and where's the special music guy at and you know, all of those details that even if a senior pastor has other staff members that does those kind of things and is responsible for those kinds of things, I don't think a senior pastor ever just relinquishes responsibility for that. He still worries about it. And so an opportunity every now and then for a pastor to be there my, my senior pastor at, uh, at Broadmoor, whenever I was the family pastor, I would, I would usually preach about eight times a year. And a lot of those times, he was there. And he would say, you know, man, I, 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 want, I want you to preach just because I want, to have, I want to have an opportunity to grow. And so I'm going to let you preach, you know, four, five, six times a year. And I'm going to be here for those. And then two or three times a year, I'm going to be on vacation and I'll be out of town. I want you to preach for me. If you've got friends, buddies that you can do that for, do that. That's a great opportunity for them to learn and grow. Otherwise, it's that whole always doing output, never having input. So be an encouragement. Three, educate. Have conversations. Don't walk out of here with the information that we talk about and keep this to yourself. Educate the people around you. Educate the pastors that you know. Talk to them about what's healthy and what's not healthy. Have conversations about pastoral health. For those of you that lead associational meetings or you lead like church team meetings, maybe you're, maybe you're a senior pastor in the room and, and uh, you, know, you have a weekly staff meeting, take time during those meetings to talk about pastoral and ministerial health. You're missing a primary opportunity to lead from the front of the room by giving time for those things. Invite a guest speaker to talk about burnout, compassion fatigue, and pastoral health. Encourage them to, to continue their own training. Educate. Fourth, model. In parenting, I say this all the time when I'm doing parenting conferences. Be what you want your children to become. Be what you want your children to become. Makes no sense as a parent for you to yell through your house, Would you please stop yelling in this house? You need to model what you, see, what you want to see replicated. Right? You ever heard this statement, We teach what we know, we replicate who we are? Your church, your staff your pastors, your friends. It doesn't really matter in a lot of ways what you say. What people are going to pick up on is what you do. What you do. When I was at New Orleans Seminary on faculty, Dr. Chuck Kelly, who used to be the president at New Orleans, he used to do this really cool thing. One of our core values at New Orleans whenever I was there. I'm sure probably it's still one of them. One of our core values was servant leadership. And so we talked an awful lot about servant leadership because it was a core value. But one of the things I always appreciated about the president was 
he was usually the first one to arrive and the last one to leave. And he would be the guy walking around to, to the tables asking, you know, can I get you something? Can I get you some tea? Can I take your plate? He didn't, he didn't wait to be served, he served. And so it kind of trickled down to the rest of the faculty, not because of what he said, but because of what you observed in him and how he interacted with us as faculty members and with our students. Modeling is so important. So to the pastors in your life, whether they're friends or colleagues or people that you serve or people you serve alongside, be what you want them to become. Model for them positively setting good boundaries. Here's an interesting thing that I see that happens. I'm sure this doesn't happen where you are. But take this back to somebody else who needs it. I'll go into an associational meeting. And a lot of times those associational meetings, they start with a little meal, they'll do a little lunch, and then they'll do a little business, and then we'll do like a teaching time. And so I'm waiting on my time to get up and teach on something. And so, but you get to hang out with the pastors in the area, you know, as we're having a meal together. And the conversation usually sounds like a one-upmanship on who is the busiest. It is a one-upmanship on who is the most stressed out, the most busy, the most overwhelmed, you know, the most chasing their tail. And we say that as if it is admirable. You know, I find there's this very interesting thing whenever I read the Gospels. I don't see Jesus ever multitasking and being in a hurry. I don't, I don't see him frantic and frenetic. You don't observe that in Jesus. You see him working hard. You see him ministering to the multitudes and to the masses. And then you see him withdrawing. You see him connecting with those who are closest to him. You see him doing those things and yet somehow we feel guilty. I, just once I would love for me to be at one of those meetings and for the conversation to break out and for a pastor to say, man, you know, Saturday I took my son fishing. We had the best day. It was so much fun just to get to spend time with him and invest in him and just have a good time. Like no Bible study, no sermon, no preaching, no... Like we just enjoyed the time together. It was great. But you know, somehow I think that you don't ever hear that because that guy fears that if he says that, that the other guys at the table are going to think that he's not working hard enough. Dude, we got all these needs out in the community and you got all the needs in your church and we got all these people dying and going to hell and you're fishing with your son? Yes, because my first ministry is to my family. Amen. You know, what difference does it make if you grow a church and you lose your home. We were going around the table one day whenever I was at Broadmoor and uh, our pastor asked, he said, what do you feel like is your number one responsibility in your job that you have here? We're going around the table. We're an executive staff meeting. There's eight of us, eight executive staff members around the table. And he said, what? I want, when we go around the table, each one of you say what you think your number one responsibility is in your job here. And so we go around the table, and I was the last one to speak. And it got to me, and he said, Tate, what do you think? 
What's your number one responsibility? I said, to be a good wife to Wendy and a good dad to Preston, Spencer, and Tatum. And he kind of looked at me for a second. I said, dude, we're ministers. And I'm a counselor. What good does it do for me to do marriage counseling if I don't have any credibility in my marriage because I pour myself out to the extent that my wife hates me and my kids don't know me? I can't, I can't preach or teach with any credibility. My first responsibility is there. we got to learn to model that stuff. We can't say one thing and model something else. You can't say to your congregation that they need to spend time with God and they need to rest and they need to have their priorities in the right order. We as ministers cannot say that and not also do that. And maybe even just being a little open and honest about our own struggles in those areas. Just being open and honest about times when we've been run down. Henry Nouwen once said, people are always a lot more eager to talk to you about their sin if you're willing to talk to them about your sin. I think that's true. i got exactly two minutes to give you for questions. Chris said you guys are loving questions. I'm going to give you a whopping two minutes to do that. I preceded you at, at Southwestern just a few years, but I was fortunate to have C.W. Brister, yeah. pastoral counseling. Yeah. He gave us a book very early on in my ministry that changed my life. It was uh, Behind the Mask. Behind the Mask. Yeah. So it's a must-read for every ministry. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. It's a great book. Wayne Oates is a great guy. has a couple of really good resources, but that's a great book. Chris? Take your time. Okay. Hey, who wrote the book Zeal Without Burnout? Zach S. Wine. Zach S. Wine. S. Wine. And I can't, I'm sorry I can't spell it. Somebody can Google it for me. But I'm pretty sure it's Zach S. Wine. E-S-W-I-N-E maybe? It's he and Chris Ash. Chris yeah, Ash. there you go. What was that again? Zeal Without Burnout. And here's the thing I love about Zeal Without Burnout. It's actually a really short book, so if you're burned out, it's an easy book to read. <laughs> I make our DMN students in ministers, person, and professional, I make them read that every semester, and that's one of the things they say about it. They say, I love the fact that it's a book that's written that's actually relatively easy to read. Like it's, it, doesn't wear you, it doesn't wear you out. You mentioned burnout and compassion fatigue. Do you distinguish between I do. the two and how? I do. Major distinction between burnout and compassion fatigue is you can have burnout without compassion fatigue. You can't have compassion fatigue without burnout. The big difference is compassion fatigue really is burnout, but it is burnout from the cause of what's called vicarious trauma. So a line worker in a factory can have burnout from doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. He gets cynical about his job. He hates his bosses. He doesn't enjoy this. So he's burned out. He's failing. He's not going... He's not, got all these signs and symptoms of burnout, he can have that on the line, but he doesn't have compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is unique to what we call the helping professions, pastors, educators, nurses, people who relate to people one-on-one -on -one and who deal with crisis and trauma. So they burn out, but the burnout predominantly has as its root cause the fact that they are exposed to other people's trauma on a regular basis. So I sit and listen to people's problems all day long and I'm burning out because I'm having to listen to people's problems all day long. It's not just a job, it's the nature of the job that's doing it. That make sense? Mm -hmm. Let's go here and then here. Um, just out of curiosity, have you seen an increase in burnout as presumably the, the apathy of the church is growing and pastors feel like they've got to do more because nobody else is doing it? There's no, question, there's no question for me that there's been an increase in 
in burnout and compassion fatigue both. I think it happens for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, I think this, on, honestly, the church is just not, in my, in my mind, the church is just not as dependent upon God as it once was. And so guys, they're, they're just operating at so much of a spiritual deficit. And because we're planning so many churches that have less pastors, it's been a little more helpful over the course of the last 10 or 15 years that guys have started enlisting like plurality of elders or really having deacon servants that really deek, you know, that, that don't just do the business of the church once a month like they truly are deacons who serve well. That's actually helped some. But I think overall probably the numbers have increased probably in the last 15 to 20 years. Let me go here and then I'll come here. Um, when pastoral counseling is receiving all of these issues on the table, how do you effectively table those issues so they won't rest on your life and find themselves in your sermons to preach from the pulpit? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a great question. Probably one of the most common questions that I get as a counselor. How do you not take this stuff home with you and how do you not let it affect you negatively? And I'll tell, you the, the, I'll tell you the answer that was told to me by a good friend of mine when he was actually interviewing to come on faculty with us at New Orleans whenever I was there. And it was just, I, I, I couldn't, I'm going to tell you the way he told it because he's so much more eloquent than I am. I think I was kind of doing this, but he just said it so well. He said every day as a counselor, whether you're a, a paid counselor, professional counselor, lay counselor, or pastoral counselor, every day as a counselor who is a biblical counselor, pastoral counselor, I am asking people to lay their problems at the feet of Jesus. How hypocritical is it of me to ask them to lay their problems at the feet of Jesus, but then I pick them up at the foot of the cross and I take them home with me? That's hypocritical. So every day before I leave, I, I pray every day. Oh, I, actually, I pray in between every session, but certainly at the end of every day, I pray and I say, Lord, today I gave you the best that I had to connect individually with every single person that I saw. You love them infinitely more than I do. You are infinitely more concerned with them than I am. And so I am now laying them in your hands and, and I'm going to walk away from all of these problems. Like they, they are yours to deal with because I've been as present, as humble, as biblical as I possibly can. Now change is up to you from this point forward. And then, and then I, I walk out and go home. A lot of times I don't go straight home just because I want to take time to clear my head, so I might go drive around for a few minutes, I might ride my motorcycle for a little bit, I might do something to try to clear my mind a little bit before I go home. I try not to immediately go from counseling someone into having a conversation with someone else just because I need for a little bit of time to pass. Let's go here, oh, or here. Uh, have you found in your uh, research and so forth uh, any distinction between burnout rates in rural Smaller pastors, single staff. Oh no! Oh, yeah, it, it's it's not that it doesn't happen in larger churches, but there is no question that it happens in greater frequency in smaller staff churches and predominantly in single staff churches because those individuals are having to be everything. Like they they are responsible right. for everything, and they don't get to share as much responsibility. I mean, I I've I've been on staff. I was a my, my one stint as a senior pastor for about 14 months, I was a single staff uh, church. I was a, the one staff member at our church. I've done that all the way to being on the executive staff of a mega church, right? I'll take the executive staff of a mega church every day of the week and twice on Sunday. 
Why? Because all I have to do is say grace over my one area because we have so many staff members that everybody's kind of niched into the thing that's kind of their specialization. Where the small church pastor, he's, he has to kind of be a jack of all trades for everything in the church. And so a lot of times that's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. We'll follow up just on that real quickly. Uh, I know we talk a lot about pastors and, and obviously that's our business. That's, right. that's who we serve. Uh, but have you seen at, at your level right here at the seminary, have you seen guys like us have an outlet? Uh, I, I think it's important. We, we have an organization here in North Carolina. I think it's huge. Very important. But uh, have you seen an increase of guys like us? I don't know that I've seen an increase, but I do know that it happens. So I don't, I don't know that I've observed an increase or decrease either way, but I certainly know that any pastor, and I kind of see associational mission strategists as pastors to pastors, and so anybody who's pastoring a group of people is going to be in danger of it, and I certainly know guys who have done it. Let's go here. How do you differentiate between, you know, you're talking about, hey, there's a spiritual deficit here, those deficits, and you really have some mental health issues. Oh, yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, great question. So, and it's a question that applies to all of counseling. It's one of, another one of those really common questions for guys like me who do what I do. How do you know when something is a spiritual issue versus a non-spiritual issue? So I'll give you, a, I have to give you a shortened answer because this is a 50-minute, uh, this is a session, right? Like this is, a, this is session number whatever in my biblical counseling class. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of dumb it down or summarize it in about a minute. Um, number one, every issue is a spiritual issue. Every issue is a spiritual issue, right? So, but not every issue is only a spiritual issue, right? How do I know that something has gone beyond just being a spiritual issue? When we've attempted to address the issue spiritually, and regardless of our attempts to address it spiritually, God-honoring flourishing is not happening. Like we're, we're reading our Bible, we're praying, we've got accountability, we're doing all the things that we should be doing, that in everybody else it seems to produce these results. Like we get close to God, we aren't depressed, we get encouraged, we might have a season of discouragement, but overall it's not pervasive. But when it continues to be pervasive and no spiritual, uh, no spiritual intervention that we use works and God-honoring flourishing is not happening, it's now time for us to consider something outside of a spiritual intervention. That might be medication, it might be counseling, it might be any number of things. It's a good question. What's that? Fine, freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Yes, sir. You mentioned the soulshepherding.org. Yeah. Uh, I took a quick look. Is there a particular place on that website to find those statistics? There, it's a, there's a blog post. So if you'll just, I think there's a search bar up at the top. That, and I think if you just type in stats or statistics, okay. it'll, it, I think it's one of their blog posts is where I pulled it from. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, Soul Shepherding, whenever you read their blog, you'll see that uh, ex-pastors, they all share some similar information. So they're quoting some similar studies from 91. And, and they, the thing I like about Soul Shepherding is they actually give credit. It's like they give you this great big long list of stats. And out beside each stat, they put a number. And the number represents what source they pulled it from. So that way, we're not just... I mean, it's that old saying that... Um, I read, uh, 
Abraham Lincoln said on the internet that 90% of all statistics are made up, right? Like you don't really know like where the source is and whether or not it's reputable. And so every stat they give, they actually tell you like what study did it come from. So that's helpful. Anybody else? I've already gone over my time, but anybody else? Just a last minute question before I let you go. Any tools like threshold when, you, when you're dealing with a pastor a lot of times they don't understand their threshold of what they truly can carry. Are there tools out there that help us in that? Well, what I would say is, I, I use that terminology, kind of that God-honoring flourishing. Like if you're not flourishing, if you're not experiencing what Jesus said He is providing for us in joy to its fullest, then you're beyond your capacity. It's time for us to do something different.